0: Snack production.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, number nine, the captain, Trent Cotchen.
0: When you envision a contemporary sports icon, there are a few names that radiate as brilliantly as Trent Cotchin. Richmond, T. Cotchen, three votes. One of the greatest Australian Football League players and captain of the Richmond Tigers. Potchen of beauty, and the skipper goes and goes, he kicks a goal. His remarkable journey, both within and outside the realm of sports, stands as a testament to his unyielding commitment, authentic leadership and the deep affection he holds for his family. In this heartfelt interview, Trent and I discuss facing down his fear of failure, vulnerability in males and professional football and how by leading the Richmond football team with love and empathy, he brought out the best in those around him.
1: Habits are just the key to living a good life, and those habits don't have to look the same as the person that you live with, or your next door neighbour, or someone you aspire to be. They just have to be your habits that help you live your best life. One of my favourite things is uh, what we call the daily 80, and that's effectively finding five or six things that you can do either in the morning or as part of your day that you know are important to you living your best life, Uh, and if you can tick off 80% of them then you've kind of won the day and and therefore you're winning your life or winning in life. And that's kind of how I live my day every day now.
0: I'm Sarah Grimberg and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation... I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Trent Cotchen is author of the new book, From the Heart. This conversation is not just about professional sport. It's an analysis of the habits and practices that produce that which we seek most, happiness. Trent is kind and wise, and my hope is that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did recording it. I just finished watching David Beckham's documentary. Have you seen that?
1: I've just started. I've watched the first episode.
0: Oh, the first episode is excellent. All the episodes are excellent, but the first episode really displays what I'm about to talk about. So what I'm finding is in a lot of elite athletes, it's either their father that's really big into the sport and then they obviously have a love for it as well. Michael Jordan was the same. I'm sure you watched like Last Dance. And it's this practice, practice, practice. And it also reminds me a little bit of there was a book that Malcolm Gladwell wrote years ago and it was kind of talking about the same thing, like talent gets you far but it's this idea of kind of like practising and being really dedicated to a sport. Your dad was obviously very into football and kind of, I mean you can tell me, but in a sense like it reminded me of that kind of like David Beckham and his father a little bit But I would love to know, like, what your relationship was like and if you kind of look back on it and see where you ended up, how pivotal that was.
1: I think I should preface it by saying my dad's one of, if not my best mate. Like, I still speak to him nearly every day and have a special relationship with him. He wasn't one of those dads that was, like, relentless with regards to wanting to make sure that I was always practising and always getting better, but he would invest a lot of time in if that's what I wanted to do. I'd be out there, but I, I think it was more just what I saw and the way that he lived his life was that he absolutely did everything he possibly could to provide the best life that he could for not just me but my sisters and obviously my mum and left no stone unturned in doing so. Uh, and then that that effectively, one of his favourite quotes was making every post a winner, which I think comes from horse racing and he wasn't in horse, into horse racing at all, but it was every furlong there's a post, which is I think... I don't know, 400 metres maybe. And that if you weren't leading at that point, you're obviously not going to be as much of a chance of winning uh, the race. And, and that was effectively his motto for me growing up. And I think as I continued to progress through my younger days and football was a big part of my life. So that was probably where I placed so much of the perfection myth um, and wanting and craving my dad's love and affection in that way. And I think as I progressed through my footy career and was lucky enough to be successful in, in some ways uh, with regards to premierships and so forth, it was very much at the very end that I realised just how much my football journey meant to my dad mm. um, and probably wasn't as aware all the way through it, which was bizarre to think because it's been a long time. It's, I started when I was four and a half and oh, wow. and have just recently finished at 33. So yeah, it's, it's been a bit of a journey and, and probably unpacking that through the 2016 period was... Something that I hadn't realised how much I held on to, but so much of the behaviour that I either resent against now or live my life in that way has come from, you know, the lessons that I've learnt early days, but also probably some of the things that I don't want to be attached to moving forward.
0: What did your dad say that it meant to him?
1: He's he's a man of not a whole heap of words, but um, there's been <laughs> <laughs> there's been a couple of moments throughout my journey where you know, and, and some of them have been either things that Damien Hardwick, our coach, implemented, or Shane McCurry, uh, our leadership guru, as we like to call him, um, had implemented with regards to letters from your parents when we're on an, uh, a preseason camp and so mm. forth. And they're probably the moments where mum and dad have said. The most that they've really ever said to me.
0: So they get your parents to write you letters.
1: Yeah, and we would potentially write one back. Yeah, and your partner, if you're in a serious relationship, there was, uh, and your kids as well, videos along the way. So they were the probably moments where mum and dad had their opportunity to just, and it was really they keep it really simple and short in effect, and, and that was always the way with birthday cards and so forth. But I think deep down, I always knew that the way I live my life, not just from a football point of view, but as a dad and and a husband, um, I make my parents proud.
0: And so would your dad write in the letter?
1: Effectively, like reiterating a lot of what we went through as a family with regards to making every poster winner and that, you know, that was always the way they signed off was it wasn't just, mate, the way you play footy and the success you've had as a footballer makes us really proud. It's more around the son you are, the father you are and the husband you are along with all all the special moments you've had in your footy career uh, is what makes us proud.
0: You know, it's interesting when I'm reading your book, From the Heart, you talk about, like, never taking drugs and never being, you know, this big person that's into alcohol and stuff like that, which is, like, very different to a lot of the people that play football. And it just made me think then, like, I wonder, why do you think that you weren't into that stuff? Like, did it come from your parents, the way that they raised you and, how did you not just succumb to what everyone else is doing, which a lot of people do
1: a lot of the time? It's a brilliant question because I sit there now and ask my parents and and Brooke's parents the same yeah. questions. It's kind of like, why are we different to you know some of my mates, some of my closest mates? Because that's kind of the, the direction I want to take with my kids. But I'm also one of those people that's like, oh, you kind of got to let them find their own way as well. Um, you don't want to tell them how they need to live mm. their life. Uh, and, you know, curiosity is one of my <laughs> my values that I live my life by, but not in a sense of something that I don't think is important in living your best life. So I don't know exactly what it is. I think it was more, you know, we've taken the, the view that having open and honest conversations about those kind of things with our kids from a young age is better than kind of hiding and protecting them from what's happening there in the world. And that's just the way that Brooke and I think is the best way to address those kind of things. And, you know, that's not to say my, my dad loves a beer. He's, mm. you know, I think growing up, he probably had beers every night, uh, as did my mum on a lot of occasions. And maybe that's why, you know, I saw a way that I didn't necessarily want to live. But I, I just, I hate the fact that I wake up the next morning and feel crap. Yes, And now having three young kids, it's even harder to get out of bed with a hangover. So they're just decisions I've made along the way. It's not to say that I haven't had big nights with alcohol and so forth, but it's just not something that I look forward to.
0: And I'm kind of similar to you in that sense. I think also when you get into like personal development work and then doing things like meditation and fitness, they become so unbelievably important to you. You understand how the brain works and how much we can do it with it, how it's, you know, with neuroplasticity, it's forever changing and we have the ability to achieve such greatness through using it in the right way. When you're using those things to an extreme, like alcohol and drugs, well drugs just in general, you can really damage some sacred part of our like what we're given, our brain, and there may be no return from that. I know for me that has always been a reason why I'm like, you know I get my high from the other stuff yeah and and that's so fulfilling. Do you find that as well?
1: yeah, definitely oh, and to be honest with you, probably some of the decision makings also born out of me just being absolutely shit scared of yes. you know, what someone's put in something or the fact that I just don't know how I'm going to react. And that you hear so many stories where, yeah, it might be the greatest night of your life, but it also might be the end of your life. And that's just a risk that I'm not really wanting to take. And I, th- I know as athletes, there's kind of... And that's probably where I had to adjust my thinking coming into the AFL system. It wasn't necessarily, this is how I live my life and that's how you should as well. It was more trying to understand, you know, are you you doing those things, whether it's gambling or all the numbing kind of behaviours because of stuff that's actually happening outside of what's going on in the footy environment or is it just your way of coping? there's a lot of pressure with performance and so forth. And I never necessarily understood. I thought there was different ways that you could cope with those kind of things and different strategies. But I also can understand that that's just what some people succumb to and it's the easiest way Mm. to just not think about it for five minutes in your day, you know. So having appreciation and an understanding as to why people do go down that path has helped me learn more about it. But it's also not something I still, like I think there's better avenues as you said with regards to building better habits that allow you to, whether it's conversations with someone uh, that allow you to sort of debunk everything that's going on inside your head or exercise is just an important part of your day. Now you're very blessed as an athlete because that's just part of your day and it's in a program and you don't have to think about it. Having been retired for two months now, <laughs> it's a lot harder to actually plan your training. And yes. some days you wake up and you go, oh, I just can't be bothered today. But you just know how important, even if it's just a walk, can be to set your yeah, day up. Yeah,
0: and how good you feel. You obviously start to play for Richmond, and we'll talk about that. And you're a leader at Richmond. Did you have to talk to some of the players about if they abuse drugs and alcohol and... How did you even go about doing that
1: yeah um, definitely definitely had to have conversations and I think those conversations initially people would be reluctant to share anything with me because they saw the way I lived my life and were like well he just won't understand it like and didn't feel comfortable with sharing it and once I started to open up from a, a vulnerability point of view and and sharing some of the struggles that I had that coincided with the struggles they had, maybe they dealt with it differently, that opened the door. And that wasn't to say that you started to accept the behaviours, but it was more, you wanted them to have permission to share so that you could help them mm-hmm. either live a better version of the life they were living or just to understand it a little bit better. And that was a big part of my leadership journey and, and wanting to understand that we're all different, we're all human beings and we're all imperfect, but there is better ways in dealing with those kinds of stresses.
0: On November 11th, 2008, something changed that day. That was when Richmond Football Club saw you as more of a leader. Can you talk to us about that?
1: (laughs) I was 18 at the time. Um, Yeah, so it was Remembrance Day and I think there was quite a few people in the gym at the time. And I just, you know, when you're in school, everyone stops and pauses for the moment of silence at 11 o'clock on that day. And it was like everyone was just going to continue with their business on that. And, and it seems bizarre and a little bit petty um, reflecting on it now, but I was just like, oh, it, it's an important moment and I think we should show the respect that it deserves. So, so I did. I paused the music and, and said that everyone had to be quiet for a minute and oh, I think I got a few weird looks from a few people, but everyone How long kinda, had
0: you been part of the club?
1: Uh, oh, probably just over a year, yeah. I reckon, yeah. I got drafted at the end of 07, so yeah, uh, and maybe albeit a little bit small, but that was probably my first moment where I kind of stood up and spoke of something that I thought was of value and important.
0: I think that worked in your favour because Richmond obviously saw you as more of a leader. You ended up becoming the captain of the Richmond Football Club and did a fantastic job. And the way that that club has run in the past few years or longer has really been based on, you know, some beautiful things around mindset and vulnerability and all that stuff. But I wonder in you as well, like you seem to have these very good values. There's another story that you tell in your book, From the Heart, about when uh, you can tell the name of the man, he passed away and all the guys went out and had a big night and they were supposed to come to his funeral the next day. Yeah, Neville Crowe. Yeah, but only a couple of the team ended up showing up. And you obviously were one of them and were really disappointed at, at how they knew the value of this man and everything he had given to the club, but they had put their partying ways before that.
1: Yeah, so it was the best and fairest the night before and I probably wasn't in the greatest space already yeah. uh, at that stage. That was the end of 2016. Uh, we'd finished 13th, been beaten by 100 or more than 100 points in our last game, which for those that don't follow the AFL, that's that's a shellacking. <laughs> It was a pretty dark season, and from my own personal point of view, I, I was in a pretty dark hole at the time, so sharing in the best and fairest, it was literally at Crown Casino, not far away from where the funeral was being held, and I was hopeful that a fair few of the boys would show up and pay their respects to to neville and and Val his uh wife when they didn't show it was it was it was really disheartening, like I was actually shattered, and I don 't know whether it was just the emotion of the whole year coming together for me, but to me, it just showed how much we actually valued what the club was about. Like, Neville was one of the guys that was part of the Save Our Skins campaign in, I think it was the eight, late 80s, early 90s, literally save the footy club, rattling oh, wow. tins on Punt Road to get money just to keep the club going. So, without having that understanding, and I was probably one of those guys in my younger days that didn't realise the history of the footy club. But yeah, and then, and that led to the moment with Dimmer and I uh, after the funeral where we just, for the first time, really, were open and honest with each other about how we were truly going. Um, He felt really lonely. I felt really lonely. And that was kind of the way that we had led, particularly in that year. Uh, We didn't want to burden anyone with the struggles that we were going through. And, you know, we shed a tear and a hug. And, you know, that really kick-started the next part of us going on our own personal journeys, but also um, our footy club being more open to just males showing vulnerability and and talking about how they're truly going, which was really powerful. Why did you feel lonely at that time? I probably brought it upon myself. The only person I would really share with how I was truly going uh, was my wife, Brooke. Um, <laughs> and that was because I didn't want to show any signs of weakness to, to other players within the organisation. I'd been criticised a fair bit in the in the media and that was something I typically hadn't taken a lot of notice to but for whatever reason, maybe just the where I was from a mental point of view in that season in particular, i had read more into it than I'd ever read into it. So it had all just taken a toll. Why did
0: they criticise you?
1: Because I, I was the worst captain in the AFL. Mm. Yeah, and it started... Got a, that's got <laughs> to hurt. It did, yeah, it, it hurt. It started before the pre-season even started that year. I was in Bali on a holiday and I remember a, I'd spoken to a guy the day previous saying, look, I, I don't really read the papers. Nice to be here and chill out and enjoy some sunshine and not have to think about footy for a little while. And the next day he walked past, I was uh, just catching a little bit of sunshine and he's like, oh, have you read uh, Mark Robinson's article today? I'm like, no, I haven't. Cause I told you yesterday, I don't read the paper." <laughs> He's like, oh, geez, he goes pretty hard at you. I'm like, well, now I have to read it. <laughs> Not that I probably had to, but he effectively said he didn't think that I was the right person for the job. And maybe I've got this wrong because it's all in my head. But um, someone like a Jack Rewat might be the right person to take over the role as captain of the footy club, and a whole heap of other stats and so forth that went with that article. And at the time, I was I was hurt by it because I was I thought I was doing my best. Mm. And I definitely was trying to do my best. That was kind of like the very beginning of me becoming the whipping boy for for the 2016 season. So, yeah, it was hard. And I didn't want to, you know, speak about my dad and my mum and other family members. I probably leaned into Brooke's dad more than anyone just because he'd played the game and also I wanted to protect, you know, the people that, one of the best for me. Um, and he was always good to have a conversation with. So it was definitely a hard time because I did feel really lonely, but I also didn't want to be a burden on anyone else's life. And to the point where we'd had our second child Mackenzie in the June of June of that year. And, um, yeah, like as much as I was there and trying to be present as a father, I, I don't think I truly was as engaged as I probably should have been for the first couple of months of her life, which really does hurt me to say that to this day, but I also have a, beautiful relationship with her and invest more than I possibly can, uh, in all of our kids. So yeah, that was the journey that was in the end of 2016.
0: How did you not let those stories that the media was saying that obviously aren't true because, you know, like, look what happened, you know, how do you not let them become your story? Because so many people would. And I think, You're in the public eye. The media can be absolutely brutal as we see. I mean, you go back to David Beckham. I forgot there were years there that everyone hated him and booed him every time he came to play a game of soccer. And I just think it's so horrid. Like, everyone is human. You've done nothing that has affected anyone else's life. How did you not let that become the narrative?
1: I probably did.
0: Yeah. But how did you then not just quit?
1: I was close, Mm. really close. To the point where I had a conversation with the club about whether, you know, maybe I wasn't the right person as captain, maybe it's the right time for me to move on to a different club and allow a new breadth of players to mm. to take on what I hope is a successful era in the footy club. And that was probably me hoping to hear someone say, no, 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 mate, you've got this. And I was probably craving that from people within the organisation at the time because it, it does feel like a pretty lonely place um, and you don't you don't want to share too much. And that's probably one of the, my favourite quotes that I learnt in that period was that a problem shared is a problem halved. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you share it, you've got someone else who either has been on that journey or has experienced something similar or just wants to be there and help you. And if there's two of you working through it, it's better than one. And oh,
0: yeah. Sometimes when you just talk at it, just say it. Yeah. You're like... I say it doesn't seem as bad as yeah. when I just think about it in my head. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And that's where I was lucky enough to be introduced to Ben Crow, my life coach. And, you know, he'll be the first to say, you know, I, I didn't save Trent's life or footy <laughs> career. I just helped him open his eyes up to, to what was good in his life and and the strengths that he had and the values he lived by. And not a lot of that changed, but having clarity on what they were and how I wanted to show up in the world, just opened this door to so much more happiness. <laughs>
0: Ben's been on this podcast before. What did Ben teach you about mindset that was so important?
1: Oh, a big part of what you were just touching on, like the story you tell yourself effectively becomes your story. So the initial part of the journey was really just establishing who I was and how I wanted to show up in the world. And that was through a little bit of purpose stuff, uh, your values, which I could have nailed my values pretty, pretty quickly, but Having clarity on that, and then all your decisions being formulated around those values made it far better. So, f- f- for the listeners, my my values are uh, curiosity, authenticity, uh, and love or family. And like so many of, or pretty much all of my decisions, whether it's from a business or commercial point of view, or just an everyday point of view, are based around those values. And and then my purpose was established through that as well, which is to help others realize and fulfill their potential. and Once I had real clarity in who I was and and how I wanted to show up in the world, I just felt so much more free. And that was such a powerful thing for someone who was still relatively young. I think I was 25 or six at the time. Uh, I'd been captain for four or five years. So had kind of done an apprenticeship as this person thinking they had to be a particular kind of person. And then it was like, all right, well, let's take all that shit off and let's actually show up and be Trent. This real human that has some great strengths as a leader, but also just building relationships and allowing people to be their best. You know, how easy is that when you just take the pressure off yourself?
0: I mean, you're so young when they, when you started being the captain for Richmond. Do they like give you some training or something like this is how you do leadership? <laughs> because how would you know?
1: Yeah, like no, no courses as such. Yeah. And you have, um, Leadership coordinators or coaches within the organisation, which chop and change. Sometimes we've been very fortunate that we've had Shane McCurry for a long period of time Mm. now. From an actual education point of view, not a lot. Yeah, (laughs) it's kind of like whatever you see and you like, try and emulate that. And you know, I, I thought I, I genuinely thought I had to be perfect in every category to lead the best that I possibly could. And. That is just too hard. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm not and I never will be. And it's great to strive for perfection in in a lot of elements of your life, but golly, it's yeah. not it's not a fun life. No trying one to is. Live up to that.
0: You say don't judge a book by its cover, which is, you know, beautiful words. And you found out when you first met Dusty Martin, he just sounds like the most interesting guy ever. You have a beautiful relationship with him, but can you tell us a bit about when you guys first met and, and then how the relationship
1: kind of formed? Yeah, well, it's kind of black and white. It's the tattoo guy that has a little bit of attitude, doesn't necessarily give or he comes across like he doesn't give a shit to anything or anyone in the world. Uh, and then I'm this other guy trying to make everyone happy and no tattoos and pretty clean skin kind of, kind of guy, less partying. Um, and when he first came in, it was kind of like he had the tattoo that was on the back of all the Ben Cousins stuff. I think Dusty said, live free, die free, obviously because he had such his life across his stomach. Um, so he already had been tarred with this bad boy brush, which I kind of didn't want to associate with, to be fair. And it wasn't like I, I distanced myself or didn't talk to him in his early stages of his career, but it was just like, oh, well, we're different. And, you know, he's obviously got some great talent and we'll be great mates on the footy field. But, you know, outside of that, well... We'll wait and see, but um yeah, going through that that process of learning about him and his backstory and the relationship we forged and uh, I can't imagine living the life that he lived growing up as compared to what mine was, but that was what made it so beautiful was mm. kind of understanding each other and learning more about him and what made him tick and you know then establishing how connected he is to this spiritual part of the world which I don't think anyone would ever believe me, particularly... Yeah, so
0: what's it, what kind of, I mean, this is a podcast that I loves remember. that kind of stuff. What does he do? When I read that, I thought, wow, that's so interesting.
1: Well, I remember he, he had come over one day and he was like just hell bent on Brooke and I watching this um, documentary and it was called Heal. Oh,
0: yeah. I don't know if you've seen yeah, it. Yeah, I've interviewed nearly every single person on that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: But he was obsessed with it. He's like, mate, yeah, it's this, really good. He's like, "This, this is amazing. Like, you don't need... You know, any kind of medication, you can heal yourself from within. And and with all due respect, I must have been tired that day. And I think it was obviously after one of our kids had just been born. So I fell asleep towards yeah. the end of it, but it was about the fifth time that he'd watched it and he's wow. just was obsessed with it. But that was kind of the spiritual connection he is. And he he got in right into to yoga. And then when he had his injury more recently with his kidney, um, he did this grape and fruit diet where he lost 12, 13 kilos because of these wizards from overseas that he'd been following on Instagram, but he wasn't scared of trying those kind of things. And, um, again, going back to the very beginning, you, you said, you know, finding things that make you feel really good Mm. in your daily life. These are all the things that he was connected to and knew that were an important part of him feeling his best. I do hope that at some stage in his lifetime that he he goes deeper on his whole story. You know, I think I think he's written a book and it's probably more pictures and people speaking about his journey rather than him actually talking to it, but it would be an interesting read.
0: He lived at your house for a bit. So tell us a bit about how that came to be.
1: Yeah, so he it was January 1 year, so he'd had a pretty rough kind of off-season. We'd gone back into pre-season training leading up to Christmas and then I can't remember whether there was actually something that unfolded. There'd been the odd occasion where Dusty had ended up in the papers for either a, an argument at a restaurant or his behaviour for some, particularly when he was younger. And Brooke had encouraged me to reach out and just say, look, maybe he just doesn't understand that you can kind of, there's a different way you can live your life as well. Like you can still be a professional athlete and, you know, enjoy all the, the great things that come with that, but also live a little bit more with uh, structure and... You know, eating dinner at home every night and not needing to to go out for dinner and find th- different things to do to keep yourself busy. So that was that was the the premise of us reaching out via text. And uh, he obviously liked the idea and came along. And uh, I think that was in a period where he's probably in one of his lower points. And I'll never forget the day that his his old man came over as well because Shane is or was uh, just a humongous merry man. Tattoos all over his face, his body, so pretty scary and daunting kind of character. But for whatever reason, when he walked in our door, I felt so much safer in my own home. So, um, (laughs) but yeah, like they're all the little moments throughout our journey. Um, And I touched on in my book a a walk in the middle of the night that we went through. And how was that? Weird. Like it was the first time I'd got up and gone for a walk at sort of one o'clock in the morning. But
0: why do you uh, want to do that?
1: he, He had had. A rough night's sleep, couldn't get back to sleep, just felt like a walk was going to help settle him and clear his head. And, and I was just like, like the fact that he was comfortable enough to get out of his room, come tap me on the shoulder, scared the shit out of you, me, mind you. But, <laughs> um, and then ask if we could go for a walk. Like that was, they were the moments that really just started mm-hmm. to, to make our relationship go deep.
0: And tell me, you know, did any of that rub off on you? Do you have any spiritual beliefs of your own?
1: Um, Yeah, it definitely rubbed off on me. Probably like a lot of the time when Dusty would have a new idea, I'd be like, oh, actually I really like that. And I'd try it out or, but for me, it's like habits are just the key to living Mm. a good life. And those habits don't have to look the same as the person that you live with or your next door neighbor or someone you aspire to be. Uh, They just have to be your habits that help you live your best life. And one of my favourite things is uh, what we call the daily 80 and that's effectively finding you know, five or six things that you can do either in the morning or as part of your day that you know are important to you living your best life uh, and if you can tick off 80% of them, then you've kind of won the day and, and therefore you're winning your life or winning in life and, and that that's kind of how I live my, my day every day now. So, what
0: are
1: yours? Yeah, so I, I love coffee, so I yeah. always start my day with a coffee. There has been times where I've detoxed, so... It's, I have to find a new thing, but cold water therapy, a walk, which important. I started the walk with earphones in listening to podcasts. I've now gone to just hearing and kind of feeling nature. I actually love walking in the winter more than I do in the mm. summer for some reason, just the cold air and the darkness. I, I really like, find it really spiritual to be out there in the mm. dark. And then journaling, I always love to either write my thoughts out for the day or just grat- gratitude journal.
0: I've started doing... Well, start, oh, Exercise is the other thing. Of course. I started doing like a meditation that has breathing in it as well. It's really long, yeah. but it's amazing. So I went on this Wim Hof retreat last year. Yeah. It's just unbelievable what I've learned over the years about the power of the breath. Yeah. I'll give you an example. I had always been quite... I don't even know why, like a bit fearful of flying, like got a bit claustrophobic. Someone said to me, you should just watch your breath. Like do... The box breathing, which is like, you know, four breaths in, hold, four breaths out, hold... I tried everything and literally every time I get on a plane now, I do that breathing and within seriously minutes, that anxiety is like, it just goes. I tried so long to watch my thoughts and distract myself and do all these things to the extent where there were times where I was like, I don't want to get on that plane. Like I was that nervous about it. And to think that the breath is the thing that ended up like curing this. I just think that's unbelievable. Bloody oath. Like, how do you use breath work?
1: Well, I I believe you've had Emma Murray on. Yes. A lot of what she brought to our footy club from a performance mindset was, you know, finding your anchor. And one of my anchors is my breath. So my anchors were when I was playing more. So was bouncy feet, one deep breath, and then um, a smile just to relax myself. And I use that in everyday life, whether I'm driving a car and someone cuts me off, it's just like... And that just calms the central nervous system down. Kids... They tend yes, to tend to yeah. <laughs> test the boundaries a lot of the time. So, using a deep breath and and then the performance mindset stuff that goes with that has just been critical to not just football performance but life performance. Like because mm. life really is just one big performance. So when I say I don't do breath work, I, I probably do, and it's got to a point now where it's more subconscious than it is from a yeah having to be consciously putting time and effort and energy into that. That's not to say that I fail at it a lot, <laughs> especially with kids.
0: You talk a lot in your book about like humility and honesty, which are two qualities that you embody in life and as a leader. How did you get your team to do the same?
1: That's where vulnerability was so powerful for us, like getting up there and laying it all out in front of the group. And I I touch on in the book that uh, there was a young guy, who was in his first year, and I just shared that, you know, I still get anxious going into a game of footy. And, you know, I spoke about not being the party goer because that was always the feedback I got as a leader. Oh, we want you to come out with the boys more. And I'm like... I don't like that. Like, yeah. it's just not what I'm interested in. Ask me for a coffee or to have lunch with you and I'll be there with it at the drop of a hat. So sharing all of that and, and giving them permission to feel like, well, if I feel those feelings, our captain does too and that's okay. And then I suppose from there it was the deeper level of connection and, and relationships that we built and, you know, guys sitting there and just knowing that, oh, well, I don't have to act like a certain way, I can be myself. And, yeah, there's kind of... We always liked, likened it to having bigger paddocks but really strong fences. So there's there's expectations as a Richmond footballer that you have to live by. But within that, it's a free-for-all. Do whatever you want. And we've had so many different and interesting characters whether they're senior players that played every week or younger guys that just brought energy to our environment. And and that was a really empowering thing that we went on uh, from a journey point of view. You know, some guys would play the shittest music ever in the gym, but (laughs) that was their role within the team. And that was, they felt empowered, gave them something to look forward to every gym session, So finding little things where people felt like they were contributing to the greater cause, Mm -hmm. even if they weren't playing over weekend, uh, was really important to everyone buying in and and being a big part of the Richmond Footy Club.
0: What was the mindset that went from the Richmond Football Club not doing well for many years to then like bang, it just changes and you guys are like absolutely nailing it? What do you put that down to?
1: Yeah. (sighs) I don't know if there's one specific thing. I, I, I reckon there's two things that I'd love to mention. One one of our values became celebrate, which sounded so, like I remember having the conversation with Dima, like this is where we've got to as a group. Yeah, Celebrate kind of feels right for our group. And he's like, mate, we're a fucking footy club, like celebrate.
0: <laughs> it just reminds yeah. me, like celebrate yeah. good times. <laughs>
1: um, but then the more we spoke about it, we're like, well, we want to celebrate all the small, really hard yeah. actions to do. And we want to celebrate. Everyone for their differences, and the more we started to bring it to life, it was like, "Oh wow, so that, that was one thing, and that that encouraged this element of play and having fun and you know it wasn't a job, it was it was the best place to come and do your work and have fun with each other, like at the end of the day we're playing a game for our job, like yeah, and that should awesome. be fun. Um, and we should celebrate that. So that, that was, that was one thing we shifted and adjusted and and the mindset that came with that was really powerful. And then I think the other thing from a, probably a coaching staff point of view, like Neil Baum came into our organization or came back to our organization. And I think where we had got to with coaches, players, you would pigeonhole guys and you would start to go, well, they can't do this or they Mm -hmm. can't do that. And I think what they started to do was, well, no. They can do this, and that's going to complement what this guy can do. And they started to put pieces of the puzzle together that would effectively create this, this really well oiled machine that allowed us to be at our best. And everyone's strengths would kind of hold each other's weaknesses up in the way that they're interconnecting it. And credit to Dimmer, our coach, uh, and, and the coaching staff and footy operations team. It was uh, obviously a recipe for success.
0: How was your relationship with Dimmer?
1: Yeah, brilliant. Like a, a father figure. I, I love Dimmer. I still love Dimmer. The lessons I read just this morning, actually, a quote where good coaches make good teams, but great coaches change people's lives. And I think Dimmer has changed so many people's lives mm. with the way that he's led as a coach, but also um, as a human. And that's not to say that it was challenged at different stages throughout, but to be on that journey both as a as a coach and a captain, so much of what he taught me was was really special, and, and the lessons that I'll take, and and not just Dimmer himself. Like Danielle, his wife or his ex-wife, she had a huge role in the way that we lived our lives. As in Brooke and myself, their kids, their involvement in the footy club. Like it genuinely was a family club, and and that's what I loved about where we got to as an organisation.
0: Is it hard? I mean, for all the different players in the club that go through things, but obviously Dimmer kind of went through some stuff towards the end how do you support him with that when there's all that public backlash yeah
1: I think at the end of the day like Dimmer's a great mate and will always be yeah. a great mate and I think it's where you don't want to interfere with mm. what's happened or what's being spoken about have happened and our, our role is just to be there as a supporting act and that's what mates do. Mm. And the same goes for Danielle. Like she was obviously an important part of our family as well. So we remained connected with her and, and her kids who are beautiful and gone on to do really wonderful things. You know, they're a bit older now, but to the point where Immy's looked after our kids a couple of times oh, as well. That's, so that's sweet. Yeah, it's really special. And, and that relationship will stay there forever.
0: Mm. Before your son was born, you talk in the book from the heart about something quite scary that happened.
1: Yeah, so... Sadly, my wife has been induced every time because of football. It's probably one of my regrets is that she hasn't naturally gone into labour with any one of our kids. But with Parker, our our last born, all things were progressing pretty well and then all of a sudden it got a little bit hectic in in the birthing suite and our obstetrician said, righto, we're going down to an emergency C-section. I knew how much Brooke didn't necessarily want to have Mm. a C-section, obviously when it's an emergency well, I wasn't aware of how serious it could have been if she didn't go down Mm. that path and how quickly that can change. So, yeah, it was pretty dramatic. I knew how much she didn't want to. They they rushed her down, obviously get her prepared because it's a totally different um, preparation and scenario and you're in theatre effectively. And I think the nurses must have told uh or could tell that I was a little bit rattled and shocked she's like um you look quite pale did you want to just step outside and take a moment I was like actually yeah that's probably something I need to do um
0: what were you worried about
1: probably probably everything like not knowing what was going to happen and it's so funny like so many of the lessons that you've learned from about focusing on what you can control and taking a deep breath and they're all the things that went out the door in that moment <laughs> of um severe stress but um Yeah, and then probably worrying about knowing that, you know, the recovery is a lot harder and, you know, potentially you might lose your wife or you might lose your child or you might lose both. Like they're all pretty dramatic ways of viewing things, but it does happen and that was probably what was running through my head and, um, yeah, managed to go back out, calm myself and come back in and play the supporting role that males do in the birthing process. But, again, another (laughs) – a different experience from the Mm. previous two kids, but – still uh, as amazing, as special as uh, all three of them have been.
0: I think people think being a footballer's wife, like, would be an easy thing. And I mean, not that I know, but, you know, I don't think it's as easy as what people think or just like a, anyone in the sporting arena's partner is difficult. And you talk about in your book, when it was COVID and how Brooke, you're all in a bubble and how you explained to us what the bubble was and how Brooke kind of came out of that bubble and put what was perceived as everyone at risk. And that was a really frightening time, not because of that, but because of how the media was laying into her afterwards.
1: Yeah, so we had effectively been given a couple of days' notice that we were going to move to a hub on the Gold Coast from Melbourne, given COVID had started to spread and, or re-spread, I think, because we'd already been locked down for a period of time in Melbourne. But uh, So, yeah made the decision that we we're going to treat it like one big adventure, go up as a family. We we're in lockdown for the first two weeks, so couldn't leave the premises that we we're on. Three kids. Um, at the end of the day, the details don't really matter, but we'd been promised a whole host of different things like uh, a gym, that would be schooling support, that would be babysitting services. But because we we're in a severe lockdown for the first two weeks, it wasn't actually be able, able to be accessed. So uh, we had two girls uh, doing online study, trying to manage that. Anyway, when we finally got out, I was recovering from a hamstring injury. So I hadn't travelled with the team for an interstate trip. And we'd asked our COVID officer if there was uh, any issues with Brooke going and just getting uh, a facial at the time. Professional place, not one of your dodgy sort of (laughs) setups. They wore all the relative protective equipment, including masks. And um, yeah, anyway, she went there and for whatever reason, they knew who Brooke was and said, oh, look, we'd love knowing what you guys are going through. We'd love to to give it to you for free. And Brooke felt like the right thing to do was to post it on social media, just saying thank you. Having had it ticked off, thinking it was okay. And then got a call while the game was on. Oh, you have to pull that post down. It's outside of the, the AFL's rule and regulations, not COVID rules. Oh, no worries. Sweet. Pull it down. And then obviously it all blew up after that. And the AFL had promised effectively that Brooke's name wouldn't be mentioned, but there'd been a breach and la-di-da-di-da. And it is what it is kind of thing. And But I suppose it was, you don't appreciate or understand what everyone was going through in Melbourne at the time because you couldn't literally leave your front door mm. <laughs> outside of a certain hour of the day and you couldn't be more than a kilometre away from your house. So there was a lot of pressure in Melbourne and, uh, and a lot of people really dealing with lots of uh, challenges in that period of time. And I suppose the frustrating part was that it was communicated that there was a COVID breach, whereas it was actually just an AFL rules breach, which was effectively protecting people because we're up there living the best life. Yeah, they didn't want it to be seen that way from people that are in lockdown in Victoria. So that was effectively what happened. And then, you know, the keyboard warriors get a, a hold of it. And I think the fact that Brooke sort of owned it, put her hand up, in my opinion was kind of like well we're willing to pay the fine, we're willing to move forward like realise that it isn't allowed and that's fine, we'd heard other stories but that's that's none it doesn't even matter to the story but we just wanted to own it, move on and mm. be done with it but the backlash that continued to, to go on and still to this day there's the odd mention of it where it's like what do you mean like something that was relatively non-event from an actual point mm. of view to the way that it blew up and you know, put a lot of pressure on the footy club. Uh, Obviously, Brooke was in a pretty bad way. Um, Yeah, and just trying to manage that along with three kids in a little one-bedroom apartment in uh, the Gold Coast was was a challenging time.
0: You were worried that she might actually take her own life after it.
1: Yeah, there was a couple of times where, you know, she was in the, the lowest point. And I think that's what people don't see and don't understand. Like, from my point of view, it was like, they've given up their life and not that life was great in Victoria to come up and continue the game that everyone loves and sacrifice a whole heap of their own support that she would normally get when she was at home. And as much as we were in lockdown, I'm sure that her mum would have been able to visit and give her a break from the kids and so forth. So I was really frustrated with the lack of understanding as to the whole scenario and the fact that they'd sacrificed a lot to be there and as much as it was nice to be in the sunshine and live on the gold coast and the memories that we created beyond that time are incredible and special and something we'll hold dear for the rest of our lives but at the time it was it was pretty scary
0: and you know people look up to you so I'd love to hear from your opinion as well for people that are keyboard warriors and they're writing these awful things about people that they don't know and they don't know the gravity of what these comments can have an effect on someone. Can you just talk to us a bit about that and how, why it's so important that we view everyone as human? Like that could be your mother or your sister or your father or your brother. It's not on.
1: No, it isn't. And social media is a killer because most people post all the best parts of their Mm. life. So it does look like you're living your best life and that everything's rosy, but Everyone, as, as we've touched on, everyone has their own story and are living their own story. And I suppose for me it's always like, one, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't th- say anything at all because as humans we're negatively wired to focus on the negative things said. So amongst all the negative commentary, I reckon if you went back, there would probably be, let's call it 50-50, mm. both people supporting Brooke versus people being hatred towards her or whatever it was but naturally you're reading the yes, negative ones and just always, focusing on the mind on goes those, to the negative ones. Uh, I think it's like, I yeah. think it's like 80% like 80. Yeah, even if
0: it ridiculous. was 90% positive, 10% negative, yeah, you would still only remember the negative.
1: Um, so that makes it really hard and that's on us as people to continue to tell yourself that story when you are reading those kind of things. But yeah, I think like not making assumptions and being kind is, is two of the things that I wish the world would lean into more and more. Mm.
0: And I wonder from being a leader for so long, what do you think are the qualities that you led with that were the most important for making Richmond such a great football club?
1: I was very fortunate. Like I had some amazing people around me that had different strengths to what I did. There's guys that are super driven and relentless in the way that they pursue their professional career and, you know, always doing the extra touch and, extra video and all that sort of stuff. That wasn't probably one of my strengths. I I would always do everything at my absolute best when I did it, but I wasn't one of the guys that was first there at the footy club and leave last. But for me, probably – and it was something that I I probably learned along the way was empathy, like having empathy to everyone's situation. That's probably on the back of what we just spoke about. Like Mm. if someone's late to a meeting, don't make the assumption that they couldn't give two shits and they just rolled out of bed late. Like actually let it pass – go and see him after it and and ask, is everything okay? By having that empathy and showing that you're willing to hear and understand it and not agree with it all the time and maybe point them in the direction of, you know, if you were late because you just set your alarm too late and a bit lazy, like, oh, here's some of the things that I've done across my career that have helped me with being on time. And so having that empathy helped build stronger relationships and therefore allowed me to understand people better. And that that doesn't mean that I was best mates with everyone across the footy club, but I felt like I, in most cases, could have a deeper level conversation.
0: What's it like winning a final and being the captain of
1: that team? Special, especially when it's unexpected. Like, 2017 was phenomenal. Just the whole build up to it. Like, we hadn't beaten Geelong in my whole career. So, that was 10 or 11 years at the time in the qualifying final. Then we got momentum into the prelim. We played the GWS Giants, who, you know, I don't know what year they were in. They've only been in the system for 10 or 12 years now so very early on in there um so it was 100,000 people at the MCG and literally would have been no more than a thousand GWS supporters and the rest were Richmond and, and that was the most amazing sound we kicked a goal within sort of a minute in that game and the sound that came out of the MCG was phenomenal and then Adelaide had been the the dominant team for the whole season um Grand final week, Dimmer had just encouraged us to embrace it and lap it up and enjoy it and celebrate it, um, as much as he hated that word very early. (laughs) Um, But that just became a a big part of who we were. And, like, I'll never forget grand final parade into the day, like, no doubt shitting myself. But once I got to the ground, I felt so comfortable just knowing that how we played the game was simple, everyone within it. Like, we we had some guns, but we also had some genuine role players that – you just knew we were going to show up and get to work and and have lots of fun doing it. And we knew that if we were in touch at halftime, we'd give ourselves every chance because we'd finished off most games that season really strongly.
0: What's the feeling like?
1: Weird, to be honest. Like I would love to say just ecstasy, like out of this world, but it was weird. It was almost there was parts of me that was like, oh, this is not as like crazy as I thought it would be. Uh, There was moments where I was like, this is really going super slow. And then like you'd reflect on it once you're back in the room, you're like, God, that lap of honour went so quick. Kind of bizarre. And one of my favourite things to do was, because I'm not a big drinker, I actually went to the cafe the next day and just sat there and read every article, which Mm. I never do. But like just looking at the photos and, you know, taking a moment to reflect and enjoy not just that day but the year. And, And that's what I love most about often when we catch up as a group of guys and and the constant chatter in the change rooms when I was part of the footy club, it wasn't necessarily about grand final day. It was about the little stories along that journey that we just had so much fun with. Um, You know, I remember in grand final week, Shane McCurry had organised for these bongo uh, islanders to come in and and play the drums. Um, And Bashar went off and did a, a tangent on his own, which like for whatever reason sticks in my mind, but... And then using that as part of your story in the game and, you know, we want to be playing from the same beat kind of thing. Um, So, yeah, just amazing memories.
0: There must be something about seeing the crowd roaring and stuff as well, like knowing that you're doing this to make so many people happy as well as yourself and then seeing them roaring. How's that?
1: Yeah, phenomenal. And some of the stories that I heard throughout that year and, and then on the day were, you know, what I probably didn't or underestimated the impact that winning a grand final can do for people's lives. Um, Like I loved footy growing up, but I never was an avid diehard supporter of any team. I barracked for Geelong um, and I saw them win the grand final in 2007, but the people out there, like it's life changing for them. Mm. And one of the beautiful stories that I heard was two brothers uh, had lost their old man during the year of 2017, continued to buy a seat in between them for the whole year including grand final day and, like, that was them sharing a moment with their old man. Even though he wasn't there, it meant the world to them. And then there was another story I heard of um, some Adelaide supporters that left early on in the last quarter and gave their tickets to two Richmond fans that were sitting Mm. outside the gate because they're like, well, we don't want to see the end of the game because it's not what we came here for. You guys may as well enjoy this thing that hasn't happened for 37 years. They were the stories that I was like, wow, like football is more than a game. Like to me, it was, mm. all I ever wanted was to win a premiership with my teammates, but realising the impact it has on people's lives was huge. And like understanding that, that that's how best performance comes to connecting to those purposes, like that, that's really special.
0: And you've done a lot of work with kids that have been very sick and some terminally ill like, how's that? And knowing that, you know, they look up to you so much. And in some instances, you're their wish, you yeah. know, their final wish kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, it's hard to be honest with you, like, particularly now that you have kids of your own and seeing them and you, you try to imagine what life would look like if one of your kids touch wood, were diagnosed with uh, a terminal illness or were literally fighting for their life every single day. And, um, the thing that I've learned is the perspective so many of those kids has like, have. that They're just really special human beings. And more recently, uh, Hamish McLaughlin, who's a good friend, mm. sent me a video. I don't even know why he was at the Royal Children's, but um, her name was Laurie. And um, she was recently, I think it was the second time that she's effectively beaten cancer, but they're not obviously getting too far ahead of themselves. But sent me a video. I sent one back and then stayed in touch, caught up with them. And then in grand final week, they were actually back in Melbourne uh, and I understood more in depth of the story and how how long she'd been battling along for. And, like, they're inspirational. Mm. These kids, like, I remember the FaceTime, like she just had the biggest smile on her face and I was like, um, you know, she still can't eat, she has to be fed through a tube. No complaints. She was the eldest out of four kids helps mum and dad, feels guilty that they have to put so much time, energy into to her life. And it's like, mate, don't feel bad. Like, but yeah, they teach you so much, which is probably the the best part about it. And I, I hope that they understand the impact and the positive impact that they have on our lives. Mm.
0: It's so unbelievable to see how sport can be such a beautiful part of people's lives. Like, you know, you take those kids that are unwell or just the family in regional Australia or wherever, how it can bring people together in such a beautiful way. I mean, to be part of something like that must just be incredible.
1: Yeah, it is. And and to know that you have something that does m- make their life that little bit better is is a really special gift. And they're, they're all the things when I reckon you get to the end where you go, geez, I'm pretty lucky to have been on this journey. And maybe across the time when it has been a bit shit, they're the things that you needed, a little slap across the face to go, mate, as bad as it seems, it's still very good.
0: (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And I wonder, like you've obviously retired. That must be hard. Like you're not only you're retiring from the game that you've grown up doing your job, also being the captain of this team. And there must be an uneasiness that comes with kind of going into the unknown. Like you've got your book now, but... You know, there's so much buzz for so many years around what you do and then slowly it kind of gets quieter and quieter. How do you deal with that?
1: Yeah, I'm kind of excited by it. Like I've probably, what I used to say was I wish I could play footy with a mask on and then take it off after the game and just live a normal life. So I don't know if that'll happen. I'm hopeful that it does. But the transition of being a full-time athlete to wanting to, you know, build a business and build a community through your business. Like they're all things that are are new motivations. What do you want to do? Well, we've got a company called We Are Posi and it started with just socks. So either quotes or questions of dialing up gratitude on the top of your feet. So when you put them on in the morning, instead of doing your journaling, we've effectively done your journaling for you and effectively starting your day on the right foot, pardon the pun that was kind of where the idea was born out of just helping people create those habits because it's just something you do every morning anyway. Uh, and then from there, we we want to go wider, like every order we donate a pair to um, the homeless, but also I'm really connected to wanting people to live their best life from a from a mindset and mental point of view. So looking at different ways in building effectively just a positivity community and whether that's you know, we've got a whole host of ideas that we're trying to bring to life at the moment. But the first stage is rebranding from Posse Socks to We Are Posse and then building the community bigger and wider.
0: That's amazing. You talk about an instance in the book where you did have an anxiety attack. It was before a game. How do you work through that to be able to then go on and play well?
1: Yeah, that's where you do a whole heap of the work leading up to it. But I think the thing that I've learnt with anxiety, and I've been very fortunate that I haven't suffered a whole heap of Mm. anxiety throughout my life, but it does just creep up on you and and in a moment it can just take a hold of you. So if you don't have those strategies that you've worked on or if it's a high-pressure moment, those strategies probably aren't coming to you in in, in that time. So I was fortunate where I I had the ability to reach out to Crowey at the time and he effectively came back. So for me the anxiety came from the fact that I hadn't performed well in finals As captain in the previous three attempts, which was the three years previous to 2016. And I started to stress that that was going to be the case in our first final in 2017 again. So, but what he literally texted me was you can tag a player, but you can't tag a captain. So, focus on the things that make you a good captain, which is just, you know, communicating, helping each other up. Uh, setting people up, making sure you're organised, like all the things that are really easily controllable and that doesn't mean that you're going to stop or deny the opposition from getting the footy or playing well. But it just allowed me to go, oh, I don't need to have the footy 30 times to have an impact on the game. And that literally just released that. Wow. That stress from a performance point of view that you know had to be the best player or think that you have to be the best player or at least contribute close to that, you can still impact the game. And yeah, across the year in 2017, like... You know, some of my tackles were more important than kicking a goal, but each and every player had moments like that within the game.
0: What's the best advice that you have ever been
1: given? Oh, best advice. I love a Doctor Zeus quote. Today you are you. That is truer than true. There is no one alive that is youer than you, Aww. or who that is youer than you. That's Doctor Zeus.
0: That's so nice.
1: It's all well and good to see people that you want to emulate some of their behaviour, but at the end of the day, there's only one you, and that's what I encourage our kids. Like, don't think you need to be something because of the way your friend or yeah. a family member acts.
0: Be authentic. Be you. Yeah, it's so powerful. Do you have, besides from that one, a favourite prayer or saying or
1: mantra? Um, I, I love just the simple I'm enough because mm. so much of the fear and anxiety that, or pressure that I put on myself is out of not enoughness. Um, so that's really powerful. And there is some socks that have that quote on it all it's over. It's so it true though,
0: plastic. because, you know, growing up, environment, just everything, there's something that will come through our path that will make us feel like we're not enough. Yeah. So we are a little bit scarred by that in some senses.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think like the more you have that conversation with people, and I've been fortunate to be in environments where I've met really successful business people that, you know, high-level investment bankers f- as such but and earning ridiculous amounts of money. But they suffer the same kind mm. of thoughts and narrative. Like, you have that conversation when they go, oh, well, I, I look at you as a really successful sports person and feel like I'm, I, I don't really have a right to talk to you about those kind of things. And it's like, mate, I look at you and go, <laughs> what you've done in business and the investment world, like – Why would you even spend any time with me? And it's like, why are you even worried about Mm. this shit? But I think we all do it. And, you know, conversations I've been having recently because of football coming to an end, it's like, oh, so many of our friends, because we had kids so young, are sort of late 30s, early 40s. So they've got 10 years of living their life on us. And I think about my last 10 years and the lessons that I've learned or the opportunities that have come your way if you compare yourself to where they are in life, like you're always going to feel like you haven't done enough or you aren't enough or you don't have enough. And like it's just a shit place to be. So just be here, be now and have fun with it.
0: Mm. What's your greatest hope for society today?
1: It's easier to talk about fears, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) My greatest hope is that people start to understand that they have a place in the world no matter who they are and they offer value doesn't matter what story they're telling themselves.
0: What's something you wish for yourself?
1: To become really good at helping other people realise that.
0: What is a life of greatness to you?
1: A life of greatness. It's got nothing to do with winning. It's got to do with living and being. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it's exploring and being curious as to what's out there in the world, but building really strong relationships where you create memories.
0: Trent Cochin, You're such a lovely person and I think Richmond was so lucky to have you for so many years. Like there's this word that's said in the Jewish culture, which is like you're a mensch, which is just like a really good person and you are that.
1: I like that. You're a mensch. (laughs) (laughs) It's
0: just a really good person and you really have done so much for not only the players but all of the supporters and anyone that kind of looks up to you you've been an incredible leader so thank you for the conversation today
1: no thank you for having me
0: if you've enjoyed this episode then i'd love you to join my community on instagram at sarah grimberg where we post videos and behind the scenes footage of each recording You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. If you love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. Listener.